Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. We pick up our reading there at verse 7. Hear once again the word of our God. She, that is Mary, brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude, of heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this morning the blessing of his word. We come to a scene that really almost the entire world knows. And you know that scene fairly well. Here you have the evening hour. Here you have shepherds who were once in their fields minding their flocks. And suddenly light shines. Angels proclaim. And then you find these selfsame shepherds running to the manger. You find them going to the place of beasts and of cattle to see a child laid in a trough, laid with straw, swaddled to shield him from the elements. That's the scene. And it's been so often romanticized in books and all kinds of other things. And friend of Reformed Presbyterians, we know there's something very nefarious about these kinds of representations. I submit to you, friend, this morning as we come to this text, these kinds of romanticized ideas, these kinds of pictures that we're so, so familiar with, are not just nefarious because they're idolatrous. They're nefarious because they also corrupt the text that we have before us. You see, friend, all along the gospel writers have been very careful, not just to give us history, though they're doing that, Not just to tell us what has taken place, though of course they're recording these things as facts. But the interest of the gospel writers are, and they tell us very plainly, they tell us the interest are is that we might believe. Not just that these things have happened, but believe in a living person. 
Everything in these gospel accounts are to urge us to come not to a historical Christ only, but to a living Christ presently. Everything that we have in the gospel accounts, every detail that's been given is to exalt Christ and to show him who he was on earth as a man in his humiliation. To show him what he is in his exaltation. But friend, also he is, to, he is shown here for us. He's shown for us here a savior of sinners. And the gospel writers are very careful to show us even how these sinners approach this Christ. Careful, friend, because those who would read these accounts are those who are urged to believe in this living Christ. If I could illustrate just for a moment, friend, you remember what we encountered last Lord's Day morning. We have that moment where heaven interprets all that has gone before. And you have that in verse 14. You have here the cry, Glory to God in the highest. That is the highest heavens see here in a strange and a new way the glory of God manifest. And on earth, here you see in strange and peculiar ways the grace of God secured. That's heaven's interpretation of what's gone before. And you see then, as you look through the rest of the text, verses 15 to 20, our text this morning, how men respond to that. And how careful Luke is to tell us that they are responding to this really. And to illustrate this, friend, I want you to notice that this whole text, in many ways, is focused around this idea of praise. This response. Note in verse 14, you have the praise of the angels. In verse 15, the beginning of that, beginning of that text, that praise ceases. It ceases. And then you see the, the shepherds conferring one another with one another. Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass. There's an exhortation. Not given from heaven, by the way. This is the first time, by the way, that there has been a theophany or, or an angelic manifestation that has not, come, that has not accompanied with it a, a, a precept from heaven. Here, the precept, the exhortation comes from those who are recipients of the vision. Then you move from there to see also that these men are men who find signs, who see the very thing that was signified to them. They behold Christ in the manger. They publish these things, says Luke. And then as you come to verse 20, you find the return to praise. You find here the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had heard and seen. Verse 15 gives us the cessation of heavenly praise. Verse 20 brings the resumption of praise, but but through men, through the shepherds. As you look at this passage, this idea of response is really focused in two ways. First of all, it is that idea of praise. Here Luke is telling us very pointedly that this whole moment is really bookended by the praise of God, either by men or by angels. It is praise that is the primary response that Luke would have us see. But even with that, friend, you also see here, you see that Luke is also very careful to give us various responses in addition to praise that are made. Uh, just direct your attention for a moment to the crowds. So the shepherds are publishing along these things that they've seen, and note what he says in verse 18. All they that heard it wondered. They marveled. They were amazed. Then note Mary's response. Verse 19. Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
Again, Luke is giving us more detail about the response. And then finally, of course, in the 20th verse, the response of the shepherds. Praising, glorifying, and praising God. You see what Luke is doing. He's showing us not only what has gone, what has gone before, but he's emphasizing something, friend, that we can't miss. He's emphasizing that as souls are encountering both the proclamation and the incarnate Christ, Well, friend, they're responding. I think we read the scriptures too shallowly, too often. But if you notice, friend, every detail that I've just illustrated from the text, this wandering crowd, this pondering Mary, and these praising shepherds, they don't add a single piece to the timeline, do they? We could simply read from the birth of Christ We could even include the calling of the shepherds and go directly to the circumcision of Christ. And nothing of the history itself will be lost. And nevertheless, as he writes under inspiration of God's spirit, Luke is compelled to include for us the responses that men make to Christ. He is careful to tell us how the crowds receive the things that they hear. He's careful to tell us how Mary responds to what has gone before and what she hears from the lips of the shepherds. He's careful to record for us as well the response of the shepherds as they've seen all of these things for themselves. You see here, friend, the gospel writer is making a very clear point. He's tutoring us, as he did in the first chapter. He's tutoring us on how one approaches and responds to Christ. And what's striking, friend, as you look at this text, is that all of these responses, and chiefly the response of Mary and the shepherds, is in one sense very paradoxical. Who do these ones behold? Who do they see as they come to the manger? Who does Mary see? Who do the shepherds behold after they've left that place where the angels shone so brilliantly? They come to a child wrapped in swaddling clothes, requiring comfort and aid for his body, laid in a trough, very clearly rejected, not only by the world, but even his own countrymen. And yet, friend, Luke tells us they respond, carefully and more importantly, in faith. And we'll see that, God willing, as we continue this morning. Our theme is just that, though. That here you find men and women showing us that they behold Christ according to divine revelation. Not according to the estimation of the world or even their own eyes. They look at Christ as God has revealed him to them. In other words, we find here that true faith sees Christ in light of God's word. True faith sees Christ in the light of God's word. And I want us to see that briefly, friend, this morning under three headings. I want us to see how the faith here is an assenting faith. How it is alluring. And finally, how, how it is an awing faith. And so first of all, the assenting that we have in this text. Note as you look at the 15th verse. Here we come to the conference of shepherds. The, the gospel writer takes us to these men who have just received this angelic revelation, 
And here's the conversation. Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. Now, now no friend, what they're not saying. Let us see if this thing has come to pass. That's not what they say at all. Let us see this thing. They already have entrusted themselves to the revelation that has been given. They've already entrusted themselves to the word of God as it's been given to them through the angels. And friends, you think about Mary as well. The other exemplar of faith in our text. We already found her described by Elizabeth as she that believed. Well, friend, if you look at this text, you find here that she is then pondering these things, not not obscurely, not at an arm's length, but she's pondering these things as one who has believed. She is one endowed with faith. But I want you to note, friend, as you look at this text, two comparisons really should hit us immediately that really illustrate for us the kind of faith that's in view here. I want you to notice, first of all, take Mary. Mary was with Elizabeth, that, that one who was promised to bring forth the Lord's forerunner. And you remember how Elizabeth brought forth John. Oh friend, the countryside was filled with fanfare. I, I mean, you remember the cries that are heard after Zacharias is healed. What manner of child shall this be? The amount of attention and the amount of excitement that surrounded the birth of John the Baptist. Well, friend, we're not terribly surprised at that. This was, of course, a rare child. But then come to Christ. No fanfare. No countrymen. Though they were surrounded by the house of David. None of their countrymen, their family, would allow them entrance into a home or even an inn. And when she brings forth her firstborn son, when Christ is born into the world, the audience is beasts and not men. And the first ones who laud the coming of Christ are not kings, but they're shepherds. And yet, the text tells us Mary was one who believed. She pondered these things as one who believes. She beholds Christ Notwithstanding this kind of picture of humiliation she sees before her, she beholds him as God has proclaimed him to be, the incarnate Son of God. But then take the shepherds. Friend, what have they left? They left that moment whenever glory shone round about them. They left that moment when heaven seemed to be breaking down upon earth. They left that moment when the chorus of heaven sounded in their ears. And then they are led from that moment of brilliance and of beauty to a stable, to a trough. And note their response. They're beholding one for whom they glorify and praise God. Oh friend, these are men and women then who are not seeing things with the eyes of the flesh. These are men and women who see Christ, who assent to God's word concerning Christ. They see him according to the word of God. And you see, friend, as you look at this text, this is, of course, instructive to us. The shepherds and Mary both demonstrate the kind of faith that is required if we would approach Christ to write. 
You see, God's word concerning Christ is faith's, you could put it this way, specific object. It is God's revelation of Christ that faith really grounds itself in. And we see this for a few reasons. We see this because the world obviously will not commend Christ to us. I mean, note how the scoffers are in the scriptures. 2 Peter 3. Where is the promise of its coming, they cry. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. Here's what the scoffers say. The cause of Christ seems to be null and void. His promises seem to be unfulfilled. And so why would you entrust yourselves to this word concerning Christ? Things continue as they always have. And what's striking is the apostles are dealing with those in the epistle to the Hebrews who might be tempted to fall away from the faith. He, re- he gives this as a reason for their temptation. The Lord has said, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. But now we see not yet all things put under him. In other words, he's saying there might be a temptation if you're looking through the eyes of the flesh to not entrust yourself to Christ. Not entrust yourself to the promises that are yea and amen in Him. Because the sight of the eyes seem to say other things than what the Word of God does. Oh, friends, see see the paradox as it comes to us in Scripture. See the paradox as it concerns the cause of Christ. Here's what the Word of God says about His ministers. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. That's the word of God. That's the promise about the cause of Christ. Here's the reality. We are made, says the apostle, as the filth of the world and are the offscuring of all things. That's the reality as we perceive it. Here's the promise. He that touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them. Here's the experience of believers. For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Again, the word of God says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And yet, says the writer of the Hebrews, Believers go unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. You see, friend, what the apostle is doing, what the word of God is doing, is that the experience of believers is trusted in. If the cries of the world, if entrusted in, will say something very different than what the Word of God does. As we look at Christ, and as we look at the cause of Christ, we must be those who, like Abraham, trust ourselves to the God who quickens the dead, and calleth those things which be not, as though they were. That friend is faith. Holding fast to the Word of God, not entrusting ourselves even to the sight of our own eyes. Yes, Christ in the moment appeared to be small and really the offspring of the world. And yet Mary and the shepherds behold him as one for whom they should praise God. One whom they delight in. You see, they see through the eyes of faith. And beloved, the Christian today is no different. We preach, says the Apostle Christ crucified, under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's the very same thing that we have in our text. Christ repudiated by the world. Christ in the zenith of his humiliation rejected by men. 
And yet faith beholds him as the very power and the very wisdom of God. That's the process, friend, that faith takes as it comes to the word of God. It renounces the world's estimation of things, even the flesh's estimation of things, and holds steadfastly to the word of God and its account of Christ. And you see, friend, Christ here then appears as that power and as that wisdom. Not as the foolishness and the stumbling block that the world would receive him. No, when Mary and the shepherds behold Christ, they behold one whom they rejoice in. Whom they've entrusted themselves in. And beloved, as you look at this text, we're reminded that not only is it the case that we look to Christ himself, his person, but even the application of his work is to be accepted in the same way. Note how the apostle describes says it to the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, a precept, but then a promise, and thou shalt be saved. The precept and the promise both require faith. You see that, friend. And the Philippian jailer is really to believe that contrary to what he might think, contrary to what the world might think, even in that moment he may be saved. You see, friend, this is what faith sees. As it looks to Christ, it sees an, a Savior that is able to save them to the uttermost. That come unto God by Him. That is how faith takes hold of Christ. And beloved, the analogy that we could draw from this, though poor, nevertheless has its use. You take a man, impoverished on the street, not enough money even so much as to clothe himself sufficiently. He has no money to give himself enough heat to get through the winter. And so he wanders the street without a penny to his name. And then a man, a wealthy man, a faithful man comes to him. And he hands that poor man a check. Now friend, what do you imagine the man's response to that check will be? He'll be elated. He'll be overjoyed and he rightfully should be. But he's not one whit warmer when he takes hold of the check. His home is not one degree warmer for taking hold of that contract. But you see, in that moment, friend, that man says that this one who's given me the check is able and faithful to pay that which has been promised. Even if I remain cold in this moment, even if these things seem to be distant from me at the present, I know the one who is promised. And I have cause to rejoice because he's promised. And he who is promised is faithful. You see, friend, that's how faith deals with the word of God. They take it because it is he who is faithful who has promised it to them. And they can rejoice even before these things are really given to them in fullness because they know the one who's promised. This is how Mary and the shepherds behold Christ. Oh, to the eyes of the world and their own, they see only a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. But to the eyes of faith, friend, they see the one in whom they could entrust themselves wholly. And know that every promise that the Lord has made has been made, yea and amen, in him. But it shows us something about faith, isn't it? Doesn't it? Faith takes hold of God's word as the interpretation of reality. 
Friend, I know many exegetes of Scripture. I know many men who are quite capable of theologizing. There are few who take what they find in this book and say, this is the interpretation of all things around me. Do you see the difference? You see, in our text, you find men and women who will not entrust their judgment to the eyes of their flesh, but to the word of God. Because they say, no matter what I see, no matter what I might feel, this word is true. I've entrusted myself to the truths and to the truthfulness of this word. Few do that, friend. Precious few do that. And the reality is that is precisely what faith calls us to do. We are to see this as the interpretation of things as they are. And as it holds forth Christ to his friend, it holds forth to a real and a living Christ. Not to an idea or a theory, but to a real and a living person who calls us to himself. But secondly, we need to look at other properties of faith as we have it in the text. Secondly, we find here that this faith that is possessed is a faith that allures. I want to draw your attention to Mary just for a moment. If you look with me in the 19th verse, you'll find these words. Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now, the word kept there is important for me to point out to you. It is the same word that's elsewhere translated preserved. And so whenever Christ is speaking about putting old wine into new wineskins, the word that is used there to describe the keeping of that wine is the word of our text. The preservation of that wine is the word that's used here to describe Mary pondering these things in her heart. But even we can go beyond that. The word kept here has the sense in the original of meaning something that is prized. Something that is treasured. In fact, it would be far better for us to understand the word keeping here as the idea of keeping safe. Keeping because the thing that is kept is precious to the one who keeps it. She treasures the things that are before her. That's the sense of the text. And Luke, writing under inspiration of God's Spirit, is very careful to tell us this point. She is one who is believed, but she is one also who treasures the very things that are set before her. She counts these things precious. And what is the thing that is precious to her? Of course, I think this term can encompass all that's gone before, rightfully so. But immediately before this, what is the thing that has come to Mary? It's been the testimony of the shepherds in which they relate to the crowd and to Mary the words of verse 14. The words of the angels. God, the God himself has been glorified in the highest places and his grace has been exalted even on earth through Christ. You see, what Luke is telling us here is that Mary treasures the testimony of Christ. She counts it precious to her. The testimony of Christ is something that she would keep. Not make a mental note of it. Not merely make a notation so that she might consult it later. But that she treasures, even savors the things that are here. And friend, you can't miss either that this is also instructing us about the properties of faith. True faith. This faith is not only an ascending faith It is a faith that leads men to take hold of the testimonies of Christ as precious things. 
as things to be treasured and endured. And so, friend, as you look at this text, you see here that to those who have saving faith, Christ is precious. Christ is precious. I lay in science, says Peter, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, that believe, he is precious. Unto you, therefore, that believe, he is precious. But what of the rest of the world? Here's what Peter says. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, though the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Friend, you see what Peter is saying. This preciousness that Mary finds in Christ, and in the testimonies of Christ, Peter says it belongs to all who really believe. That is a point of distinction between those who do and who do not believe, says Peter. To those who do not believe, Christ is a rock of offense. But to those who do believe, he's precious. He's treasured. We need to ask the question, of course, why? Why? There are two reasons, of course. Faith sees Christ as he is. And Christ is intrinsically precious. And faith also is a faith that has been allured to God through spirit-wrought work. First of all, Christ himself. Friend, what does faith see? Well, it sees the Christ who is. Not the Christ who is moldable by the wills and the whims of men. But the Christ who is. And who is this Christ? Well, friend, the psalmist puts it this way. He is the chiefest among ten thousand. Solomon goes another step further. Thou art fairer fairer than the sons of men. That is the Christ who is. Take your best men. Take the men who are most endowed with gifts from on high. Take the greatest of all the sons of Adam. And hold them all, and in fact, combine them all together. Allow all of their gifts to coalesce in one individual, and that individual is eclipsed by Christ and his intrinsic worth. You see, friend, that's the Christ that they play hold of. A Christ who is intrinsically precious. A Christ who is altogether worthy of all of creation's adoration. Put all of the created goods on one side of the scale, and put Christ on the other, and friend, the scale breaks. The scale breaks. And faith lays hold of this Christ. This Christ who is daily His Father's delight. This Christ who for all of eternity was worth more than all the worlds combined. That's the faith. That's the Christ that faith lays hold of. Friend, that's the faith that leads Mary and the shepherds to rejoice over the incarnate Son of God. They see Him as God of the Son incarnate, worth more than all. But beloved, it's also the fact that 
Even though Christ is this from all of eternity, our hearts, because of our sin, would never see him as such without the grace of God. And so not only is it the case that Christ is intrinsically precious, that spirit-wrought work must lead us, incline us to see him as such. And that's precisely what we find in the scriptures. Christ says, the spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Well, what is the spirit's testimony of Christ? Friend, we so often misunderstand this. Here's the spirit's testimony. Here's the spirit's testimony. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. When the Spirit testifies to Christ in the soul, friend, the testimony is such that Christ is precious and know the Apostle's words. Just the knowledge of Christ, he says, note that. Just the knowledge of Christ, he says, is greater than all of the other things that I could imagine or hope for. Just the knowledge of Him. Friend, that's the Spirit's testimony of Christ in the soul. He Himself intrinsically is precious. And souls who were once without God in the world, ones who could be described as numbered among those who could not understand and did not seek after God, are led to cry with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire besides thee. Woe to the soul, friend! That thinks they can produce this by their own ability and inertia. Friend, what we have in this text are souls that are inclined to a God whom they hated. And see how they're inclined. Friend, the soul that says, I've taken hold of Christ, but does not see him as precious. And more precious than all. Friend, it's not only a wrong idea. It's a ludicrous idea. The Spirit leads us to take hold of the Christ who is. And that Spirit-wrought work causes us to see Him as He is. Precious. And friend, I know most in evangelicalism don't want to hear this, but this is simply the fact of the matter. What we're talking about here is not the preciousness of Christ's grace. Not the preciousness even of Christ's love but the preciousness of Christ himself. Oh friend, how many are there that fill our pews and our membership roles who say they love Christ, but all they mean is they love the love of Christ. Or they love the gifts that they think come to them from Christ. But friend, that's not, that's not something that's incapable of the unregenerate. It says Christ, sinners love those who love them. Now you see, friend, that precious That precious Christ to souls who are regenerate is precious because of himself. Who he is, his holiness and his goodness, his loveliness and his beauty. Yes, they love his love. But friend, the ground of that is just their love for himself. They love the giver more than the gift. But thirdly and finally as we close, we find another aspect of faith. Not only is, some, is faith that which allures the soul to Christ, it is also that which awes men. Note what the shepherds are doing in verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all things that they had heard and seen, as it was told to them. 
Note here what faith does. When these shepherds left their fields, and they left the angelic host, and they came down to Bethlehem, a sleeping city, and they came down to the trough, and they came down to this couple hidden among the beasts. Friend, as far as the world was concerned, if a Roman centurion were to be there, if Herod were to walk across the scene, they would see nothing glorious. Nothing for which to praise God. Well, but friend, these shepherds saw something there that would cause them to tremble with delight and with awe. They saw something there that would show them in some part the glory of their God. And they saw that, friend, because they took hold by faith the testimony of God's word. Friend, what did they see in the manger? Well, friend, they saw the Lord of glory incarnate, says the Apostle. They saw the one before whom the heavens are not clean in his sight. As John tells us, they saw the one whom the seraphim, seraphim and the cherubim cry, holy, holy, holy. John twelve forty one. And friend, this is true of all of those who come to Christ to write. Faith allures them to see Christ as precious, but it allures them to see him as he is the Lord of glory, before whom they are lowly. Note how the apostle puts it again, First Peter, Jesus Christ, he says, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The word glory there refers not so much to the faith, but to the Christ that is beheld. When they see Christ, they see a glorious Christ. And here Peter is describing those who have like precious faith. You see, friend, it's just as we've read before. The soul that comes to Christ aright sees that God commanded the light to shine out of darkness, shining in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They see the glory of God as they look to Christ by faith. As we close, just a few words of application then. Friend, what we have in this text is that historical faith is insufficient at every point. It's not enough simply to say, I know that such a man lived. It's not even enough to say, I know that such a man died on Calvary's cross. And it's not even enough to say that I know that he was raised again. No, friend, as Luke tells us how men and women respond to Christ... Well, friend, their trust in these things is evident in how they respond. It's not just that they know these things intellectually. They find these things precious and are treasured in the soul. These things awe them, humble them, reduce them before the Lord. And rightly so. And so the question is, do we have like faith as we see in this text? There are a few marks that we can ask ourselves just drawn from the five verses we've taken up this morning. The first is, are we a people who, like the shepherds, interpret reality through the word of God? Or do we interpret the word of God through our sense of reality? 
Not so the shepherds. Not so Mary. When God speaks, friend, the soul that is endowed with faith follows hard after what has been spoken. Yes, faith is weak. Often the believer cries, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. But the spirit wrought faith within the man cries, if God has said it, so it is. Are we such people? Are we such people? But then secondly, of course, there is another mark. And that is, when we see Christ by faith, do we find him precious? Well, friend, I can tell you many people will talk to me about Christ. I can be in a hospital waiting room, and everyone will speak to Christ, speak about Christ. I can go to bedsides, and many will speak about Christ. I can go to schools, and people will speak about Christ. But few will speak about him as a precious Christ, as one whom they love and one whom they adore. Maybe he's useful to them. Maybe he offers them some kind of hope. But how few, friend, really find him as the apostle finds him, worth more than all things, crying just for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Such was Mary, treasuring these things, treasuring these things as she finds them by faith. And finally, friend, another mark that arises, are we a people who are awed by Christ? Are we a people who have some estimation that this is the Lord of glory? Friend, the more that we know that, the more pride will be killed in us. The more that we know that, the more loath we will be to sin. And so, friend, the question is not do you have this in fullness, do you have this at all? Are you awed and are you humble as you come to Christ? If so, friend, all if these marks are present, there's great hope and great reason to rejoice. You stand among the likes of Mary and shepherds who are described here as believing, praising and glorifying God. And then, friend, that is also to be our comfort, isn't it? For some reason, friend, we in the flesh, from the flesh, and from the suggestions of the devil, mistake faith. We think if we just lived back then, then we wouldn't have such difficulty with faith. Friend, See the shepherds coming to a trough. See Mary beholding a swaddled child. See a thief crucified beside the Lord of glory. And in all of those cases, these souls acted faith, even though everything around them cried. It was faith misplaced. Don't mistake faith. Friend, faith is taking hold of God's word and saying it is so because God has said it is. Even if everything around us seems to cry otherwise. And so, beloved, don't give in to the suggestions of Satan. It would confuse faith with sight or faith with feeling. It's never been the case. Even if you were there at the manger, friend, even if you were there at Calvary's Hill, it would still require omnipotent grace. To entrust yourself to this Christ. No more now. And no less now than then. And finally friend. The exhortation as we said before. And this is why the romantic ideas. Of these moments should be dispelled from us. Is to come to a Christ. 
who requires us to come by faith alone. I said before at the beginning that those nativity scenes are so deceptive, not because they're idolatrous only, but friend, you know how those scenes are depicted. You know there's some kind of miraculous mark that hangs over the place or hangs over the individuals. And so, of course, as the soul looks at those images, the soul says, how could you not believe seeing these things? Well, friend, the gospel writers are very clear. Then is now, if you are to come to Christ aright and see him aright, you must do so only by faith. Only by faith. The shepherds needed as much faith as you and I do today to see Christ as he is, according to the word of God. And so come to Christ, friend. Lay hold of him by faith. Let go the estimation of the world and the thoughts of the flesh. And lay hold of him as he's revealed in the word of God. And friend, in doing so, you'll find him. You'll find him to be everything that God has declared him to be. Now and for eternity. Amen.